A smaller than expected dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, but it's still going to be a severe one. And New England is hit with an unprecedented red tide. It's Wednesday, August 5th, 2009, and those stories are coming up on this episode of Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. We're going to kick things off today with a report that just came out last week about the size of this year's dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, a dead zone is the common name for what scientists call hypoxia, and that's when areas of our estuaries, coasts, or oceans have low levels or no oxygen dissolved in the water. When that happens, the water is said to be hypoxic. Now, these areas are more often called dead zones, and that's because most marine life in hypoxic waters either die or if they can, they swim away from the area. So a dead zone turns areas in the water that would normally be teeming with life into biological deserts. So what causes this? Well, dead zones can happen naturally, but the ones that scientists and researchers are most concerned about are those created by or made worse by human activity. The main thing that fuels the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, and in many areas, is nutrient runoff. And these nutrients mainly come from agricultural activity. Nutrients, which you know better as fertilizers, are added to crops to help plants grow. But the problem is that all these nutrients aren't absorbed by the crops. A lot of the nutrients, in fact, are washed away and they're carried in the waterways and piped along as wastewater. And they go all the way to the ocean. And when these nutrients flow into our rivers and coastal waters, they can stimulate an overgrowth of algae, just like they stimulate the growth of plants on land. Now the problem is that this often leads to the growth of way too much algae. When this algae dies, it sinks and decomposes in the water, and this decomposition process eats up oxygen. And this cycle can deplete the supply of oxygen available to healthy marine life. So in other words, the decomposing algae, they suck all the oxygen out of the water, and that can cause a dead zone. So the Gulf of Mexico dead zone is a big concern in the U.S. because it wreaks havoc on the habitats of species that live there, and it's bad economically. It threatens valuable commercial and recreational Gulf fisheries that generate about $2.8 billion a year. Now, dead zones occur all over the world. In the U.S., they're most common along the East Coast, the Great Lakes, and of course, the Gulf of Mexico. And I'll give you one guess where the largest dead zone in the nation is found. Yep, it's the Gulf of Mexico. So each year, NOAA provides support for researchers to forecast and measure the dead zone in the Gulf. The forecast this year came out in June, and it predicted that the dead zone could be one of the largest on record, about the size of New Jersey. And this prediction was mainly driven by U.S. Geological Survey measurements of the amounts of nitrogen feeding into the Gulf from the Mississippi and Atchafalaya rivers earlier in the spring. Nitrogen is one of the main sources of nutrient pollution. As I mentioned this before, the main source of this pollution is from agriculture, but that's not the only source. Nitrogen can also come from things like overuse of fertilizers around homes, discharge from wastewater treatment plants, and overflow from septic systems during storms. Well, last month, a NOAA-supported survey team led by the Louisiana University's Marine Consortium measured the actual Gulf dead zone to compare it against the forecast, and it turned out to be smaller than expected at about 3,000 square miles. The researchers also found that the dead zone was quite severe this year. It's usually limited to water just above the seafloor, but the 2009 dead zone extended closer to the water surface than in most years. 
Dr. Nancy Rabelais, the researcher from the Louisiana University's Marine Consortium, who led this expedition to measure the dead zone, said she believed the smaller-than-expected dead zone is mainly due to unusual weather patterns in the Gulf that mixed up and re-oxygenated the waters. Now, the director of NOAA's Center for Sponsored Coastal Ocean Research, Dr. Robert Magnin, said that the smaller size looks good at first glance, but he cautioned that this appears to be related to short-term weather patterns, so it's not a reduction in the underlying cause. He stressed that the smaller area measured by this one cruise isn't a trend, it doesn't represent a trend, and it doesn't diminish the need to find ways to reduce the real problem, which is nutrient runoff. Now, the average size of the dead zone over the past five years, including this cruise, is now about 6,000 square miles. And hopefully it's going to get much smaller in the future. There was a big interagency task force made up of a bunch of different agencies and partners. It's called the Gulf of Mexico Mississippi River Watershed Nutrient Task Force. And this task force has a goal to reduce or make significant progress to reduce the dead zone to an average of about 2,000 square miles or less by 2015. The task force uses a five-year average because, as we saw this year, the size of the dead zone can vary widely from year to year. Now let's head up the eastern seaboard to New England to talk about a different kind of problem caused by algae. Early last month, red tide caused a near-complete closure of shellfish harvesting in the state of Maine. Atlantic coastal waters off New Hampshire and much of the north coast of Massachusetts have also been hit hard by blooms of toxic algae this season. And to give you an idea of the effect of this on the economy, in 2005, harvesting closures caused by red tide resulted in $23 million lost in shellfish sales, and that was in Massachusetts and Maine alone. Now, to help tackle this problem, NOAA recently awarded $121,000 to Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in partnership with the University of Maine to conduct research cruises to help monitor the toxins. This NOAA emergency funding supports sampling, mapping, and forecasting of red tide location and intensity, and that'll help state managers focus their sampling efforts in areas that have the greatest opportunity to reopen for shellfish harvesting. Now, the point of all this is to minimize economic impacts to the region while, of course, continuing to protect human health from shellfish poisoning. The red tide in New England is caused by a toxic algae called alexandrium. What happens is alexandrium produces potent neurotoxins that accumulate in clams, mussels, oysters, and other shellfish. And when humans eat the shellfish contaminated with this toxin, it can cause a severe and sometimes fatal illness, and that's called paralytic shellfish poisoning. And this doesn't mean, though, that you can't get shellfish in the store. It's important to note that states have rigorous shellfish monitoring programs in place to protect human health. So commercially available shellfish on the store shelf, it's still safe to eat. Now, this year's red tide event was not a big surprise. It was consistent with the seasonal forecast, which came out earlier in the year, put out by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and North Carolina State University. The forecast was based on runs of a predictive model developed over the past decade with support from the NOS National Centers for Coastal Ocean Sciences, Center for Sponsored Coastal Ocean Research. The NOAA has invested over $23 million in New England red tide research since 1997, and that's aided management of these events through new tools for detecting and monitoring red tide, and better communication among researchers and managers in the region, and seasonal and weekly forecasts of red tide location and extent. And if you want to get the latest red tide updates, surf on over to oceanservice.noaa.gov. And there you'll find an accompanying story 
in our weekly news section about the Red Tide in New England, and you can get links to more information. And that wraps up this episode, and we thank you for downloading the podcast and giving it a listen. If you have any questions about the podcast, about the National Ocean Service, or about our ocean, don't hesitate to visit us at oceanservice.noaa.gov, or you can send us an email. We're at nos.info at noaa.gov. And here's the ocean. This is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.